It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. Dr. Lena Abarafi is a global women's rights expert and gender equality advocate. She has spent more than two decades working to eradicate gender-based violence worldwide, working in more than 20 countries, including Afghanistan, Haiti, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Nepal, and many more. Lena previously served as the director of the Arab Institute for Women, at the Lebanese American University and has worked as an advisor and aid worker for various human rights and development organisations, including the World Bank and several United Nations agencies. In 2018 and 2019, she was listed among the gender equality top 100 most influential people in global policy for her research and dedication to gender-based violence prevention. Welcome to the podcast, Lena. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. And I am delighted to have you. Now, you've described yourself as born into conflict and always comfortable with chaos. Can you tell us about the early years that enabled you to say that and how they set you on the path for the work you do today? Absolutely. Well, I think being born a woman already means facing a certain amount of conflict realizing at a certain age that the world views you as as less than, as second class. So already that for me is a type of conflict, but add to that, that I am Lebanese and Palestinian. So I have two war zones behind me and I was raised between Saudi Arabia and the United States. So I'm all sorts of hyphens and all sorts of complications, which means I never took any of that for granted. And I had to really figure out who I was and what I stood for. For me, being a woman, uh, being a fighter, feeling very strongly about social justice before I could even put a label on it, feminism was my country. That's where my loyalty is. And that's really how it all started. And when would have been the first moment in your life that you thought to yourself that girls get treated differently to boys? I think the messages came firstly from my parents. Living in Saudi Arabia as a child and not being Saudi, my parents were very careful about giving me the kind of background and education and experience that they wanted. So they really curated that so that I understood what values they were trying to convey. I must have been maybe seven when my dad said to me, what's the most important thing for a woman? And I said, gosh, I I have no idea. I'm seven. And he said, well, here's the answer. It's financial independence. I'm going to ask you that every day. And you're going to tell me that answer. You're going to give me that same answer every day. And sure enough, he did. And that was in stark contrast to what I was seeing around me as a child in Saudi Arabia and also coming to understand that 
women behaved in a certain way, were expected to behave in certain ways, were covered up in some spaces. And, and so there was a lot of contradiction and I didn't really know how to explain that. So I grew up in a bit of a bubble and that was really among my earliest memories. I didn't put a label on it until a few years later when I came to the States, but I do distinctly remember that lesson. Wow, that's a very progressive attitude by your father. That's fantastic. Now, you've dedicated your career to ending gender-based violence. How did you first get involved with this work? And can you think back to a specific moment when you became aware of how gender-based violence is just everywhere and that it was going to be your life's work to eradicate it? It takes a while to understand that this is something that is ingrained in all of us as women, as girls. We're constantly told to be careful and to watch what we do and where we go and who we interact with and what we're wearing. So you're, you're told from a very early age that you are unsafe and your safety is your responsibility. And so you feel the burden of this, this idea of your freedom and your mobility and your voice and your choice being constricted and these these limited opportunities because the world views you in a certain way and you are constantly at risk. So that message, I think, comes across very clearly to young girls and certainly came across to me. In high school, I was 14 years old in a private, very liberal all-girls school in Northern Virginia, and I signed up for a class called Comparative Women's History. And I thought, all right, this is interesting. I, I'm interested in women's rights. I don't know how to define them. I don't really know what that means, but I want to know more. And the class wasn't about women's history as much as the history of violence against women, from the fetus to the funeral and everything in between. And every single country, including here in the US, everywhere, all the time, in every place and space. And that for me was just overwhelming. I had never heard anything like that. I could not imagine the magnitude of intimate partner violence or how we used to break our ribs to fit into corsets, body image and, and, and body mutilations, female genital mutilation, bridal burning, acid burning, all manner of violence, rape as a weapon of war. I mean, it was just thrown at us and I was furious. And so for me, it was that anger that got me going. And I said, nothing is possible for us as women, for me, as long as this continues, as long as I feel that restriction on my freedom and my possibilities, as long as I have to constantly worry about my safety and feel like I'm always at risk, how can I ever achieve anything else in my life? So that became the starting point for me. Fix that first, and then let's talk about all the other stuff. And we're still fighting the same thing. Sounds like you didn't imagine back then that the pathway was going to be this long. You were, If it was fixed that first, that sort of implies you thought we'd get this done. Oh, for sure. And I thought I would get it done. I said, well, hey, I'm 14 and I'm angry. You know, what else do you need? <laughs> I mean, it is as devastating as it is fueling. You know, I feel like now I'm old and I'm still screaming until I lose my voice. But I look at younger women and I think, wow, what world are we leaving for them? Every day there are new cases and new incidents at the micro and the macro level. You know, I have a niece who is seven. What am I going to tell? How do I look her in the eye and say, you know, I tried to make things better for you, but I'm sorry, I failed. How are you seeing the struggle for reproductive freedom in the US now? I mean, women around the world are watching, that's for sure. You know, we saw it coming. I wish it didn't take this. You know, I wish it didn't take such a dramatic thing to galvanize people into action. But, you know, I do believe in the power of, of anger. And now suddenly it is undeniably in front of us. 
And people are starting to understand the consequences of that. And I think it is very scary. It doesn't mean we surrender. But at the same time, you know, what is this going to mean for women and for young women whose reproductive years are ahead of them, fighting for rights to their own bodies and to make their own choices? How are we even arguing for this still? So it feels like a colossal setback. You know, if we can't achieve this, and I can't help but think, and it's been said before, you know, if this was men's domain to become pregnant and have bear children, we'd have a very different dynamic. <laughs> but here we are, and I'm screaming for the same things. It's just appalling. I'm going to take you to something else where we're seeing an incredible setback, and that is to Afghanistan. I indicated when I introduced you that you've worked right around the world in so many countries, but your research is focused particularly on women in Afghanistan. Now, the world has watched in absolute horror as the Taliban has taken control of the country and despite promises from their leadership, women and girls' rights have been eroded in the months since. They've prevented girls from attending school. They've silenced female journalists. Most recently, they've stopped issuing driving licences to women. And of course, there have been new dictates about uh, wearing the burqa again. Can you tell us, with your vast experience and all of your contacts on the ground in Afghanistan, what is really happening? They're the headlines, but what more are you seeing? Well, the challenge is, you know, there's always been two Afghanistans. There's what happens in the urban areas, in Kabul and more progressive areas, and then what's always been happening in rural areas. And that is views like the ones the Taliban hold have always been strong over there. Women's rights have always been more restricted in rural areas. There's been a more conservative and traditional and religious element in those spaces. So, you know, in that sense, I mean, in that Afghanistan, those undercurrents have always been there. They never went anywhere. In urban areas, there's been this yo-yoing of rights. You know, we think back to the 70s and, and women in Kabul and miniskirts going to university. You know, we all have all seen those images. But now, you know, this is another catastrophic setback. And I don't know if or how Afghanistan is going to recover or when, because at this point, there is no international community that's galvanizing into action. There is no collective anger and righteous indignation and no calls to liberate Afghan women for whatever purpose that served. We're forgetting about it. Our attention spans are very short globally. So we're looking at Ukraine, we're looking at other countries and other emergencies. And it shouldn't be a competition, but, you know, in effect, it is. You don't get the media attention, you don't get the resources, you don't get the support. But what is happening is what happened 20 years ago, which is Afghan women's groups who have always been active, underground movements, feminist movements, are galvanizing once again, are figuring out how to make things happen, how to survive, how to educate their girls, how to find ways to do things. It shouldn't take this. It shouldn't take driving your life underground in order to have the opportunities that you should have every right to access. But once again, that is happening. And the harder part for me is how this is being explained to the younger girls, because the older generation lived through the Taliban 20 years ago. The younger generation grew up believing that they were free, relatively free, with opportunities and access and school and work. And now, what do we tell those girls? 
So it's just, it's been very sad. You first went to Afghanistan in 2002 and you talk about the big waves of change in Afghanistan. For those listeners who aren't as familiar with that history, can you just compare the Afghanistan of 2002 and take us through the cycles you've seen? Sure. I mean, I actually started working on Afghanistan from Washington, D.C. in 1996. And that was a turning point because we started at that point talking about the Taliban. That's when Afghanistan really landed on the map. And that is thanks in large part to Afghan women who smuggled cameras under their burqas, using their burqas as subversive feminist tools to be able to document abuses that were perpetrated by the Taliban and send those videos to us to alert the world, to tell us what was going on. So that is how we found out what was happening. And in 1996, that was the turning point because the Taliban took over Kabul and therefore they owned Afghanistan. So that's when I started. I was in Washington, D.C. at the time, working on global women's rights. And then I was told, hey, something's going on in Afghanistan. Could you pivot for a second? Well, that second has you know, turned out to be a few decades. But in effect, that was a big story. 9-11 clearly was a turning point for all of us globally. And it, once again, Afghanistan was on the map. And that's when people decided, for better or worse, to take some responsibility and provide some support. So that was the military occupation, a war, and then an occupation by the international aid community, which was in effect an occupation as far as Afghans were concerned. So in the beginning, there was a lot of movement, a lot of resources, a lot of rhetoric, a lot of hope, a lot more certainly than there is now. A lot of calls for liberating Afghan women, whether or not that was done in the right way is really up for debate. But Afghanistan was on the map and in the media's purview. And then we stopped paying attention to Afghanistan. Over the last couple, last two decades, very clearly, we only heard about Afghanistan when there was a major incident, an act of violence, or the story that the media loves of the exceptional Afghan women who had done this or that or achieved some major thing. For the most part, we didn't hear about Afghanistan at all. But those forces never went anywhere. As I said, in rural areas, the Taliban was still prevalent. Afghans were not particularly happy with what was going on. There was not this kind of grand revolution and radical transformation and development that they had expected or that we had promised or proclaimed. And so there was a real disconnect between what we said we were going to do, what we actually did as the international community, and how Afghans felt about it. So a sense of letdown. And then also with women and girls, you know, rights being granted or supported in kind of piecemeal ways and only in urban areas. And so for girls, for instance, in rural areas, it was still unsafe to go to school and schools were still under attack. Those things never really changed. And they started to deteriorate as the drought started to take hold, as the humanitarian situation started to, to become a greater consideration. And then brokering a so-called peace deal with the Taliban certainly signed away women's rights right there. And women's groups said, hey, you know, what, what are you doing? How do you give us up so quickly? And sure enough, I mean, their rights were traded for a so-called peace, which proves to be no peace at all. And all the promises that were made about preserving women's rights, who held the Taliban to account? Because here we are, and rights are being stripped away, and women are being systematically erased. And today, Afghanistan is the worst country in the world to be a woman, according to the gender gap report, or according to the Women, Peace and Security Index. It's absolute rock bottom. So what now? What is our responsibility? Did we meet any of the promises that we made? 
does the rhetoric match any of the reality and the resources on the ground? What really do we plan to do? And that's that's where we sit. And I think it's a very uncomfortable space, but you know, doing nothing is not an option either. And if you had the ability to uh, speak to global leaders, perhaps you had the ability to lead a session at the G7 or something like that, or even at the UN General Assembly, what could the world do? Bearing in mind, of course, that so much focus of global attention is on the Ukraine and understandably, but what could the world do? What are the sort of three, four, five things that you would be saying to leaders, do this? Do do one thing, and it is the best thing in my opinion, is to support Afghan women's groups who never really fully benefited from the support that we promised in the first place and who are the ones who have always been leading the charge for change. They are on the front lines. I always have been. They are the ones who know the context best. They need the resources, the tools, and our support, and they will then tell us what is needed. And we should just follow through and do those things. So listen to those voices, resource them, support them, provide whatever it is that they need, because the fight is theirs and we should we should be there for them. But let's listen a little bit. And do you think that that was the key flaw during the era of development when the international community was very engaged after 9-11 and the military operations were underway that women's groups that local people weren't listened to? I think absolutely. Afghan women's groups that I worked with would say that they never received the funding and support that they expected. You know, for them, I mean, there there has always been a strong Afghan women's movement. And if we didn't see it, that's that's our fault. There is an Afghan feminism. We didn't need to import and impose it. We didn't come in to liberate women. They were already at it themselves. So, you know, we use this language that kind of denies women's agency. And I think that's been very problematic. But at the same time, you know, they deserved the kind of support that we we claimed to be throwing all over the place. And had we done that, I think we'd find women and girls a lot safer, a lot better off. So now really is the time to, to correct that mistake and to provide them with the resources that they have long deserved. The unbelievable risks those women must be taking, the bravery. Can you speak to us about that? I mean, it's one thing to be an active feminist in the sorts of environments that I am and many of the women listening are, but the the risks those women in Afghanistan are taking, can you give us a sense of that, perhaps tell us some of the stories that you're familiar with? Just in the early days of the Taliban's second takeover in August of last year, the risks that Afghan women leaders took to protect each other, to protect themselves and each other, changing names and and disconnecting social media accounts and going into hiding, they were at risk, I mean, on the front lines because they were particularly outspoken against the Taliban. So erasing their whole lives, and we heard about this, burning their diplomas and all kinds of things, really erasing their history, their existence, so they could protect themselves. And then we managed to get some of those women out, but many, many more remain there. They are still in hiding or they have crossed over to Pakistan, as as some women I know have done, or to other places. But there is a great deal of work to do. But these women are at risk every single day simply because of what they believe and what they tried to achieve over the last couple of decades. So uh, the fact that they can't come out and speak and, and protest, it's a very scary climate. At the same time, This is different because 
women are protesting. We did see some images, we've heard some stories, and that's very encouraging. We cannot imagine the risks they take in order to do that. You know, what we think is civil disobedience and our right to take to the streets in peaceful protest for them is an extremely risky endeavor and not to be taken for granted. So that is happening. And then finally, the difference here is that social media is a weapon and it is a very strong one. And we should be listening to those Afghan women who are using social media, whether it's Twitter or TikTok or whatever, to talk about what is happening. Follow Afghan women journalists who are reporting, whether they're inside or not. They're the ones who are tapped in and have access to information. Listen to Afghan voices who are telling us what needs to be done and what the realities are on the ground. 20 years ago, we didn't have that same tool at our disposal. So let's use it. Let's pay attention to those voices and amplify them and use our own power you know, as slacktivists or whatever we call ourselves when we sit here and retweet to retweet the right things. Let's get those messages out. Let's get them to people who need to hear them and have an ability to support those voices. What more can women do who are listening to this podcast? I mean, obviously using their social media presence is good and it amplifies the messages, but are there practical things people can do? There are always organizations to support. I write a blog every week in several of the blogs. In fact, I wrote about Afghanistan and I wrote about specific organizations that we need to follow and support and fund. And I make a point of doing that with every issue that I raise because it's one thing for us to to not be aware. I think that there's no longer an excuse for that. We're hyper aware of what is happening in the world. But then once you are aware, you should be angry or you're asleep. You know, it's impossible to not care about these things as they go on around us. It's impossible to say, well, that's just other women or that's Afghanistan or that's over there. That's not me or here or now. No, we have, we all are responsible. And in fact, it is here and now, which is an important connection to make. But every single time I write about any country, Afghanistan or other, I say, well, here's what's happening. Here's why you should care. Here's why we should be very angry. And here's what we can do about that anger and try and provide some tangible sources and and credible organizations and people to follow and support. And so I'll continue to do that. And I can happily get that information to you or any of the listeners at any time. That's fantastic. Thank you. And I'm sure women will take that up. So thank you so much. Now, of course, you've just referred to the phenomenon I think we can all succumb to sometimes, which is that we other gender-based violence, as though it's happening to other women, it's happening in other parts of the world, when the reality is one in three women worldwide experience it. As someone who's advocated for women's rights globally, how do you persuade people who just do think it's someone else's problem. I mean, you must meet people. You live in New York in the US. You must meet people who are full of sympathy about Afghanistan, but really just don't see any issue in their contemporary world, in their cities, in their suburbs, in the US. What do you say to them? Well, I think it's about understanding what the forms of violence are, because there are many. So something like intimate partner violence, which is the most common worldwide, affects so many more women than we know. And women are mostly silent about it because what is the incentive really to speak out unless they're going to be protected, unless there is security, unless there is justice. And very often there's not those things. And women don't have alternatives. And so that is one of the silent 
pandemics, if you will. And when we start to talk about those things, we start to talk about sexual harassment. You know, the Me Too movement made some great strides for us in the magnitude of the problem because everybody, I mean, in, in this country and certainly in, in Europe and other places with connectivity and with certain resources, they everybody was Me Tooing. Everybody had a story. And when you stop and listen to that, it was just overwhelming because, you know, I certainly have a story. Every woman I know has one. And so when we have those conversations, we realize that it is just the painful ordinariness of this that you you cannot deny how we talk to our girls about where they are on the street and, and dark alleys and walk with your keys in your hand and don't keep your headphones in so that you can hear something behind you or whatever types of restrictions. Like I said, we place on the, the freedoms and mobilities and choices of women and girls. And I keep saying, even the fear of violence is a form of violence. And we have all grown up with that and internalized it so much. I look at young women all the time who say, oh, we're at a bar, come with me to the bathroom or call me when you get home or, you know, be careful or don't talk to him or, you know, keep your eye on your drink all the time. My goodness. I mean, it's exhausting having to live with all of that, you know, that fear. So that for me is already a crime. And that when women see that and they understand how common that is and how much they have just taken that as part of what it means to be a woman. And I say, no, but that's not, you know, that, that is not the way to live. That is not the way any of us should live. Our right is to be free and to have respect and dignity and equal share of space and resources and opportunities and all of that. And we don't. We live very small. So when people start to see those things and talk to each other, then it becomes a, a different conversation. And I say, you know, Afghanistan's not special. Any country could be in Afghanistan. You know, we talk about things like the increase in sexual violence, intimate partner violence in the aftermath of, a, of an emergency. Hurricane Katrina was right here in our backyard. We saw the same things happening. COVID is a great example. Look at what's happened around the world with the increase in, in intimate partner violence. I mean, people needed to realize that an assumption like stay home so you can stay safe is not true for too many women. And when we come to understand that, I mean, I get chills just telling you about it. And I talk about it every day. It is because it is just so unbearably common. Lena, you've got an incredible energy. How do you keep your spirits up? I mean, decades into this work, I can feel the power of that energy even as we work on Zoom. How do you keep doing it? Oh, I think it's the anger. I think it's the feeling that things should have been better by now. This constant shock I have every morning waking up to these stories as if it's happening all over again. And the weird thing is, you know, it's gotten harder for me, not easier in terms of my level of frustration and how furious I am and my, and my sorrow as well, because I look at girls and I think, we should have done better for you. You know, not that the onus was all on us or, you know, on me to fix everything, but the idea that the world shouldn't be like this. And it's that sense of injustice that I, I can never swallow it. And so that's how I keep going, I suppose. But now I do it, you know, I've, I've morphed. I do it in different ways. So I used to do it in the field, in the thick of it, in an emergency. And now in the last couple of years, I do it in New York. So I have taken some distance for self-preservation, which I, I think is great, but I will scream until I lose my voice. I do it now through advising and blogging and speaking and just howling into the void. And if one person listens, that's already good. Who are the women who have inspired you along the way? 
oh, I was raised by feminists, even though they wouldn't label themselves that way. My late grandmother, my Palestinian grandmother, fought for an education, managed to go to college. Her diploma from 1938 hangs on my wall. So that is a reminder of what women who push boundaries can do. So for me, I was, I was raised with that story and that legacy of strength. My mother as well, who also reinforced those messages of financial independence and didn't let me play with dolls because I could do much more, she said. And so I, I was raised in this very kind of odd bubble. But there are so many women who inspire me all the time. And right now, you know, I can give you names of famous women, but that's not what does it for me. It's the young women who are out there, whose names we don't know, who are out on the streets or in their classrooms or in their homes, pushing those boundaries. And they are more clear about what is not acceptable, about the lives that they want, and about the rights that they have. I, lucky for me, end up with a lot of young interns who want to work with me. And I say, come, come, you know, I can put anybody to work doing anything. And I have some who are 16 and they are amazing. And I look at them and I think, wow, you know, I was not that clear in my rights and in my place in the world at that age. And I love it. I love the strength that they have and the conviction. And that for me is, is the energy that I want to see. What I want to do is do more for them to say, all right, you all tell me, and now that I'm old, what I can do to help fuel that fire, because you're the ones who are going to keep things going. And I bet you're the ones who are going to fix it. You're the ones who are going to finish what we weren't able to finish. And I want to see it happen in my lifetime, or someone better dig me from the grave and let me know. <laughs> Lena, I am not going to leave unchallenged the assertion you're old. You're much younger than me. How old are you? I'm 47. Oh, old. <laughs> I feel like I've lived so much of it. I've crammed a lot into a short time. <laughs> you, you have crammed a lot in. I agree with that. But you've got many, many years ahead. In your fabulous TED Talk, you talk about this expression, start where you stand. Can you tell us the story of how you came across that phrase and what it means to you? Oh, that was such a powerful moment. I was deployed to Nepal after the earthquake in 2015. I was working on sexual violence prevention response, and that was actually my last emergency. So that was a very kind of meaningful moment for me. And at a certain point in trying to provide support and, and relief and recovery and looking at the systems and services to get women to safety, I was walking very early, five o'clock in the morning to the UN office where I was stationed and came across this graffiti. And that's what it said. It said, start where you stand. And I thought, my goodness, this is exactly what I've been wanting to say my whole life, but could not have put it better than this spray painted piece of wisdom. And that is because people ask me all the time, well, what can I do? But I don't want to do it how you do. I don't want to go to Afghanistan and, and Chad and whatever else. And I say, you know what? You don't have to, because unfortunate for us, it is everywhere, all around, all the time. So if you look at the space that you occupy, your home or your school or the street or the market or your office or public office, whatever space you have, whatever platform you have, you can take that space and make it feminist. And you can see that there are opportunities for that and there are violations of that everywhere. So by start where you stand, what I thought my graffiti artist was trying to tell me was that we don't have to go far to do good. It is the need is so overwhelming that it is all around us. And if we all took responsibility for our little spaces, then maybe, maybe that effort is contagious. Maybe we will see some change in our lifetime. You don't have to go far to do good. I love it. 
Now, Lena, I'm going to take you to the final few questions of the podcast. First, I want to put a fact to you. Between 1992 and 2019, women made up only 6% of mediators, 6% of signatories, and 13% of negotiators in major peace processes, despite studies showing that women's direct participation Uh increases the sustainability and quality of peace. What's your response to that? First of all, there is no peace without women. There is no peace without half, a little more than half, of the population. It is simply not possible that peace can be negotiated on our behalf, because actually it never is. Our our needs, our, our rights are never represented unless we are there representing them. So that is a fundamental flaw in the way that we view any kind of peacemaking or peacebuilding operations. And if we are not at that table, then we are not at any table. And it is far too easy for people to say, Tut, tut now, ladies, this is not your time. We're talking about bigger things. Let's focus on the national struggle and then we'll bring in your little feminist issues. That's the end of it for us. If we are not there everywhere, all the time, at every table, when every single conversation is happening, then we will never be there. And to assume that a conversation can be had about something that concerns us so fundamentally that we are a part of, that we are instrumental in delivering in preserving and protecting and safeguarding, and we already do it. You know, for me, that is not acceptable at all. And we still see that everywhere, all the time, at every single level. We're still arguing for representation of women. We're still arguing for for quotas. We're still talking about women's presence and women's power and understanding the difference between the two. We are really nowhere near where we should be. We can hardly get women into office, into leadership and decision-making and positions of influence. It is always a fight and it is always because they are a woman or there is some element of the way they are criticized or the way people view them. It is through that lens as if we have to do so much more to demonstrate that we are credible and that is exhausting. And I find that the way we think about women and women's leadership needs a radical overhaul. I would love to just erase everything that's happened in the past, give us full leadership and decision-making, and then see, and then talk to us about how well we do. And then and then see if you want to talk about what we're wearing and what our hair looks like, please. I think you may have answered my second standard question already, which is if you had all of the power in the world just for a moment, what's the one thing you would change for women? <laughs> Sounds like you've already got the answer. Oh, I know. I think that would be a fascinating experiment. You know, I keep saying I use women's safety as the barometer, right? And that really is the lowest. That is the starting point. That's not the end point. But you know, this idea of living with violence that I keep talking about is the biggest impediment to achieving anything else. So the challenge is, you know, with all political rights and opportunities or access to economic opportunities or education or health or whatever, if we are still unsafe in our bodies and our homes and our lives on the street, at school, everywhere, then we'll never be able to access those things. And I keep thinking like you can build all the girls' schools in the world, but if a girl isn't safe getting to school, well, you know, that's the end, right? And that's a very low level stuff in terms of what we're asking for. You know, that's a non-negotiable, it's a no-brainer, as we say. Like, that's just the beginning. And then yes, give us the power that we deserve, that is long overdue, that has historically been denied to us, and see what happens to the world, and then we can have a conversation about it. 
but we've had male leadership since the beginning of time. And maybe it's time for a new era. I love that conclusion that we should try the experiment, (laughs) get the data, do the comparison, men's leadership versus women's leadership. Just a few generations, you know, not not millennia. (laughs) What personally is the worst misogyny you faced in your life? I will never see myself as a kind of greater victim, if you will, although I don't really like to use that word, than any of the women that that I've worked with. You know, it's all of it. It's just, it's that, what do you say, death by a thousand paper cuts, right? It is, it is the little things every day that remind you as a woman that you are worth less, are valued less, are respected less, all of those things. And the millions of manifestations in your everyday life that prevent you from from living a full rich life that you deserve and that so many women around the world will just live and die without ever knowing what they were truly capable of or feeling like this was it i think for me is just uh, tragic and i've felt that in some ways in my life but nothing compared to to others that for me is what hurts it's that denial of your rich full incredible life you never get to experience your full potential because of all the things that have held you back and the weights that that drag you down virginia wolf says as a woman i have no country as a woman i want no country as a woman my country is the world the wonderful lena says oh i love that I mean, that to me speaks so much to what I want to say, that, that being a woman for me is the most important aspect of my identity, that feminism is my country. I cannot say that I have any loyalty that supersedes this. The idea that this is the mo- most important role I have, the most important space I occupy. It is what I love, what I believe in. It is what I hope I now I am good at, and it is my duty to do it. And if I can do one good thing for one young woman or make one tiny dent, then I have done something. And that for me is enough. Thank you so much for a powerful and incredibly energizing conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. I can keep going. You can fire all kinds of questions at me. <laughs> a podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the institutes, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Rebecca Shepherd and Connie Blafari, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you join us next time.